I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I pretend reading porn is historical research. My name is Aoife Vrednach, and I'm normally a historian of poverty and depressing ways to die in institutions. But we all need a distraction, and mine is reading like a filthy-minded censor. I tweet about sex in books at CensoredPod, and if you're in a position to support the show, check out patreon.com slash censoredpod. Patrons get the show a whole 24 hours early and show notes as well. But I get it if you're broke because this year is turning out to be even weirder than the last one. This week's episode is real, honest-to-God porn, but historical porn. In fact, you could call it heritage porn. The Lustful Turk was first published in London in 1828 by an anonymous author. Anonymity was to save him, and I'm guessing it was a him, from prosecution, but also because the book's conceit was that it is a real-life account. It masquerades as a series of letters from Emily to her friends Sylvia and Maria, telling of her kidnapping at sea and subsequent scandalous life in the harem of a North African ruler called the Day. White slavery, oriental opulence, it's all there and all true. And if you believe that, you'll believe anything. In the 19th century, the official response to this text created obscenity laws in the UK. So it's not just obscene, it helped the British Parliament define obscenity in British law. I would never have found this out had I not come across the book on the Irish censors list. This research journey is entirely random and quite mental. I'm sure you're expecting this book to be on the first blacklist, when the independent state replaced the British system with its own novel legal structure. But only one book prohibited under the old rules was rebanned under the new legislation, and that's The Well of Loneliness, coming up in episode 5. No, believe it or not, this historic piece of porn was banned in Ireland first in 1970 and again in 1987. Unfucking believable. Who bothers with porn from 1828 in the late 20th century? The Irish censor did. Now, it was published in a cheap US paperback edition in 1967, but I'm sorry to report that the cover was not of the lurid Pulp Fiction kind, so there was no good reason to ban it for a dirty cover. Even by Irish censorship standards, the prohibition of this book is really strange. 
so what drink should accompany this book? Sometimes this is the most difficult part of the podcast. There's no time for food or drink in this text because it's not actually literature. If it's not about boning, who cares? A contemporary reader familiar with sun-drenched images of North Africa will be filling in the background with deep blue skies and high temperatures. So hot sweet tea or a strong coffee might go well with it. That might fit the location, but it doesn't match the spirit of the book. This is the first time I've read something for the pod where you can play a drinking game with it. Or genital bingo if you want to retain your senses. Anytime there's an outrageous cock or cunt metaphor, take a swig. Some key words to look out for are instrument, pillar, sheath, and venus. You'll be legless extremely quickly. In turn, this will excuse the fits of giggles you'll be suffering from from reading the text. So to answer the usual question, why was this book banned? The title, A Lustful Turk, suggests something sexual, but the subtitle really does give it away, and here it is in all its glory. Scenes in the harem of an eastern potentate, faithfully and vividly depicting a series of letters from a young and beautiful English lady to her friend in England, the full particulars of her ravishment and of her complete abandonment to all the salacious tastes of the Turks, the whole being described with that zest and simplicity which always gives guarantee of authenticity. You gotta love those excessively long subtitles. It's practically a summary. This one teases you with words like ravishment and salacious, as well as selling the authenticity and vividness of the text. I've no doubt this titillated 19th century readers, but by 1970 this prose style was anachronistic. Would anyone looking for a sexy read get excited by the word ravishment? To begin, the book opens with a letter from Emily to Sylvia, which is about her having to leave England and not being able to marry Sylvia's brother Henry. It's a bit of backstory that serves to establish Emily as a virtuous, pure and God-fearing young woman. So no rude bits. Letter two is from Ali, the Day of Algiers, to Musra, the Bay of Tunis. The Day of Algiers is in fact the lustful Turk of the title, even though he's not Turkish. I know it's silly to demand accuracy of porn, but this particular conflation of cultures reflects lazy stereotypes around the East. To Europeans, Turk is a byword for swarthy foreigners with dubious sexual tastes. Oriental luxury is synonymous with moral corruption. Setting a porno in this nebulous place adds exoticism and the spice of intercultural sex. Much is made throughout the text of the corruption of Emily by the day's sexual powers, which plays into all kinds of hang-ups about purity and whiteness. Although this second letter only has oblique references to sex, you could say that they whet the appetite with suggestiveness and illusion. But there's hardly bannable content here by 1970s standards. The next letter is from Emily to Sylvia again, where Emily confesses, My God, Sylvia, I have no longer any claim to chastity. She explains that cruel force was the only reason and laments, quote, your poor friend is now the polluted concubine of this most worthless Turk, unquote. Emily then goes on, helpfully, to outline in great detail the whole sordid story. 
which is exactly what you do when you've really endured kidnapping, rape and immense social and cultural shame. And this, finally, is when the sex happens. The day starts his assault by kissing her, and this is her response. You may guess the shock it at first gave me, but you will scarcely credit it when I own that my own indignation was not of long continuance. Nature, too powerful nature, had become aroused and assisted his lascivious proceedings, conveying his kisses, brutal as they were, to the inmost recesses of my heart. On a sudden, new and wild sensations blended with my shame and rage, which exerted themselves but faintly, in fact, Sylvia, in a few short moments, his kisses and his tongue threw my senses into a complete tumult, and an unknown fire rushed through every part of me, hurried on by a strange pleasure. Well, hello to the no-means-yes trope in its earliest iteration so far. Aggressive kissing by men producing swooning desire in women must be the foundation stone of Western sexual culture. Now, a serious scholar, Stephen Marcus, pointed out that the use of the term nature here is very loaded in the early 19th century. That reason could be overwhelmed by nature, that sense could yield to sensibility, was a vigorous and powerful cultural debate. So alongside the exotic oriental ravishing of a white English virgin, there is some heavy cultural shit about human behaviour. The Lustful Turk gets a lot of attention in Marcus's book, The Other Victorians. So it is possible to do close critical reading of ancient porn. The funniest observation Marcus made was that the day was a type of Byronic hero, dark, sensual, brooding and gorgeous. But in this version, he has no tortured guilt or remorse. The day is all hotness, no angst. In other words, references to anything Byronic got people horny in the early 19th century. I'm just blown away by that. But then, he was hot as fuck. But really, by 1970 and certainly by 1987, Byron's appeal is much less dangerous and all that sense-sensibility stuff is old hat. Anyway, I must get back to the actual text. The book continues to explore yes means no ad nauseum, but with lighter moments thrown in. Well, I think they're lighter. Maybe they're supposed to be unbelievably hot. While the day is snogging her senseless, she notices something. And honestly, this cracked me up. I felt something beneath his clothes gradually enlarging and moving against my hand. From the length I felt it against my arm, I judged it to be very long and thick also. If I had wished to remove my hand from its position, I could not. And so wonderful was the fascination I felt from the mere touch of this unknown object. I think I could not have removed my hand had it been perfectly at liberty. Without knowing what it was, every throb created in me a tremor unaccountable. I little dreamed the dreadful anguish I was doomed to experience by that which my hand was warming and raising to life. If you're now doing metaphor bingo or the drinking game, that's two scores. This is the first of many appearances of the day's cock. Unbelievably, this scene gets funnier. She's swooning with desire and your man takes advantage of her lack of resistance. This is Emily describing seeing the day naked for the first time. God, I'm almost sorry to read this out. It's so crazy. 
For the first time in my life, I caught a view of that terrible instrument, that fatal foe to virginity. With unutterable sensations, I felt his naked, glowing body join mine. Again, my lips were glued to his, softening me to ruin with his inflamed suctions. (laughs) Sorry. In a delirium little short of pleasure, panting with desire, I waited my coming fate. The day had properly fixed himself to do that which I ought, but certainly at that moment did not dread. No, even as his daring hand fixed the head of his terrible instrument, where his lascivious fingers had so potently insisted in reducing me to my then passive state, I own I felt it even with pleasure, stiffly distending my, until that moment, untouched modesty. But on the very instant when I had willingly resigned everything to what I then considered my fixed destiny, his eyes, whose lustre and expression I could scarcely sustain of, on a sudden were filled with languor. He seemed, as it were, abashed, and kissing me with less violence, he grew by degrees even weaker than myself. Suddenly I felt my thighs overflowed by something warm that spurted in torrents from his instrument. At last he sank in my arms in a kind of trance. Well, that was surprising. When's the last time a porn text had premature ejaculation? It doesn't really fit the domineering aggressive male, which is pretty much the rest of the book. But honestly, is this rude by 20th century standards? Surely not. The paragraph might contain four or five genital metaphors, but it's not filthy. Weirdly, the failed rape is supposed to be more titillating than an actual rape because it delays expectations. Skipping forward, this is the very first rape scene of many in this book. Even now, when it is all over and recompensed as I have most certainly been for my sufferings, I tremble at the bare recollection of the dreadful anguish I suffered when he reduced my chastity to a bleeding ruin. I soon found it was useless to struggle or resist. I was a mere child in his arms. As to strength, he moved and placed me just as was convenient to his pleasure. I quickly felt his finger again introducing the head of that terrible engine I had before felt, and which now felt like a pillar of ivory entering me. Pillar of ivory? God almighty. Anyway, shouldn't it be a pillar of ebony? Sorry, keep forgetting this is porn. Leave accuracy, coherence and logic at the door, please. And again, what the fuck, 1970 Irish censors? Why was this banned? It's antique. High-class literary texts from the 1960s are using the word cock everywhere. The famously cock-obsessed Portnoy's complaint wasn't even banned in Ireland, but this was? Just makes no sense. I find it a very silly text to read. I'd only recommend it if you want to laugh at phalocentricism, of which this sentence is a prime example. You, Sylvia, who are yet, I believe, an inexperienced maid, can have no conception of the seductive powers of this wonderful instrument of nature, this terror of virgins but delight of women. Indeed, there can be no description given of the pure delight, I may even say agony of enjoyment, excited by the excessive friction which the rapidity of its thrusts caused. I was soon taught that it was the uncontrolled master key of my feelings. Two more penis metaphors there for your game. 
and also a trope we're well familiar with, the magic cock. The most magical of cocks, in fact. It's almost an object of worship. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're probably wondering by now about the partner genitals in this story, the cunt. For all that this is penis in vagina sex, the cunt is not given the same prominence as the cock. Surprise, surprise. A torn, painful, penetrated cunt features a lot, because so many of the sex scenes are rapes. But the cock gets all the love. It's both an embodiment of the man and an independent organ all of its own. The sheath, or grove of Venus, as it's sometimes called, is pretty peripheral. So if you are playing genital metaphors bingo, you'd win on tools, engines and instruments, long before you find many laboratories of love. But one of the odder things, to me anyway, about this penis epic is the complete absence of blowjobs. Was oral sex too deviant for this era's porn? Or is it about how control, power and dominance are expressed through sex? The men do occasionally kiss the women's cunt, but it seems to function narratively as a statement of possession rather than pleasure. Anyway, I must stop trying to read too much into this, because this book is pretty much just an excuse to worship at the altar of cock. But real ones, of course. No sex toys here. Okay, I can't resist. There is another hilarious part I have to read out. After a night of overwhelming passion with the day, Emily wakes up before him and writes this to her mate back home. I caught a glimpse of that terrible machine which had so furiously agitated me with pain and pleasure. I assure you, Sylvia, I could not look at it without considerable remains of terror, but my alarm was strongly mixed up with feelings of tenderness and respect. I thought my eyes would now be satisfied with inspecting it, but was much disappointed with its present appearance. It hung over his thigh, shrunk up to a small size. 
seemingly perfectly incapable of exciting the various sensations I had so potently felt. However, reduced as it was in appearance, it had the same power of fascination over me, which is attributed to the serpent's eye over the bird. I could not withdraw mine from it, and so intense was my survey that I did not observe the day had awoke and was enjoying my abstraction of mind. And it's another machine! Honestly, I could read out the whole book, because it's all mental. Anyway, fast forward through much rogering, a bit of flagellation, anal sex, and a few orgies, till we get to the end. The ending, lads, the ending is mind-blowing. I suppose the perennial problem faced the author. How do you end a porn story? There isn't much of a plot, but I was expecting a rescue or an escape. Remember, she's been kidnapped on her way somewhere. It wouldn't necessarily make much sense, since Emily was enjoying herself just a bit too much, but it would fit conventions. But prepare yourself, lads, because this actually happened. The day had received a Greek girl from one of his captains. She passively submitted to his embraces and uttered no complaint until he commenced the attack upon her second maidenhead, then she did seem inspired with the strength of a Hercules. She suddenly seized a knife, which she had concealed under a cushion, grasped his pinnacle of strength, and in less than a thought drew the knife across it and severed it from his own body. She then plunged it into her own heart and expired immediately. Fuck me! That was a shock. The Dick Fest ends with the death of the great and worshipful Dick. If you think that was weird... Wait till you hear what happens next. Aid was immediately summoned to stop the day's bleeding to death, and with the fortitude that ever characterises greatness, he ordered his physician to relieve him of his now useless remaining appendages, his receptacles of the soul's stirring juice, remarking at the same time that life would be hell if he retained the desire after the power was dead. When the day had nearly recovered, he sent for us, and disclosed to our view the lost members preserved in spirits of wine in glass vases. He affectionately bade us farewell, telling us that a ship would sail for England in a few days, and, as he had no further use for us, he would send us back to our native land. His kindness had such an effect on my feelings as to cause a miscarriage. I can imagine a present of pickled cock and balls to go would upset anyone. I was fairly broadsided by this ending. Apparently, both jars ended up in a fashionable boarding school in London, where, wait for it, they were exhibited as a reward for good behaviour to the little lady scholars. And that's the end. It's insane. Totally unexpected. We can all agree it's mental. But by late 20th century standards, it's only titillating. How could it have ended up on the banned list into the 1990s? Admittedly, it was the inspiration for a softcore porn film in 1968 called, guess what, The Lustful Turk. For anyone interested, there is a trailer on archive.org and it is very funny. I wondered if that's why the book came to the censor's attention, but the film would have been banned in Ireland too, so it's not a very good explanation. My theory is that the mechanisms of the Censorship Act led to this being banned. The board examined books when they were sent them, and there were three ways that they received publications. Firstly, anyone in the country could submit a complaint. 
There was a form for outraged citizens to fill out, but you would need to submit up to three copies of the book alongside it. Obviously, this limited formal complaint somewhat. You needed cash. Secondly, customs officers sent books to the board, though that wasn't allowed under the law until 1946. And lastly, the board could itself decide to examine a publication. So it didn't take much for a book to end up before the board. And I think this explains the weird, random, patchy censorship from the 70s onwards. If your mammy found this particular dirty book under your mattress, she might be so disgusted that she would submit it to the censors. Or if a customs officer searched your luggage when you got off the ferry, he could send any dodgy-looking stuff onto the censors. Maybe a board member was that outraged parent and brought the lustful Turk before the others. And in the declining days of the censorship regime, when the board couldn't ban proper literature for fear of scandal, they probably felt safe with this sort of text. I mean, who would object? The crank who complained would be satisfied, and nobody else would even know. This was banned at the same time as Alex Comfort's Joy of Sex in 1987, and everyone was so busy being cross over the Comfort ban that they didn't take any notice of the lustful Turk. So motivated people could get a book banned quite easily. People who get up on their high horse have always had a powerful effect on censorship regimes. From those who lobbied the Irish government to set up the Committee on Evil Literature, to outraged politicians, censorship has always been about those who shout loudest and longest. And that's what I want to talk about next. How Lord Justice Campbell, in 1857, got so pissed off over the lustful Turk that he pushed for the Obscenity Act. This legislation underpinned censorship across the UK, including Ireland, until independence in 1922. Campbell sent the publisher of The Lustful Turk, William Dugdale, to prison for 12 months in 1857. Dugdale was no stranger to the courts or jail, but his business in London's Holywell Street went on merrily without him. His daughter Jessie and other family members ran his print shop when he was detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. The family were all Quakers, by the way. I don't know why this surprises me, but I always think of Quakers as extremely virtuous. Dugdale was just one of the peddlers of smut in Holywell Street. The street was, in fact, a byword for filthy publications. What horrified supporters of Lord Campbell's bill were open displays of obscene prints in shop windows, where women walking the street could easily view them. Seems like the lovely ladies of Victorian London were as interested in smut as the men. Campbell wanted to give police new powers to suppress obscene publications, which were now cheaper and more accessible than ever before. The Lustful Turk was, for Campbell, a prime example of a text that could corrupt the morals of innocent youth. His parliamentary colleagues didn't all agree with him, but his bill was passed with the help of a letter-writing campaign from a powerful lobby group, the wonderfully named Society for the Suppression of Vice. The Obscenity Act of 1857 was not replaced until 1959. Mental how the lustful Turk inspired not just dirty thoughts, but a personal political campaign that resulted in an act of parliament. And it's not even that rude. I refuse to believe that this was the most depraved sexual material printed in the 1850s. 
It's not especially coarse, and I'm sure people's imaginations were much more perverse than this. In a great article about Holywell Street, Linda Need says this. It seems that the law was not concerned with the prosecution of the most sexually explicit materials, but with regulating the boundaries of the obscene, that is, with policing those representations which came closest to the limits of respectable culture. So the lustful Turk was dangerous because it was the sort of filth that most people would buy and read. So let's do censorship bingo to work out how representative of mainstream sexuality the sins of the lustful Turk were. First up, breasts. Yes, they are featured, but really not as much as you would expect. Bestiality. No, not a thing. Like I said, not that rude. Sex work. I don't think you can really say the harem represents sex work since it seems to be sexual enslavement rather than payment for sex. So we can't tick that. Racism. Well, yeah, I think the whole thing is permeated with all sorts of stereotypes about the East and Englishness and virginity and whiteness. So I think we have to tick that one. Drugs. Funnily enough, yes. At the very beginning, the day admits that he drugged someone in order to rape them. Politics. I think the sort of politics that permeate this text are the cultural racial stereotypes. So I think I'll leave this one. Swearing. No, not a single bad word. Very frustrating. Infidelity. No, nobody's married. And it's all about the loss of virginity and ravishment and the debasement of chastity. So no, no marriage. Crime. Absolutely riddled with crime. First of all, there's the kidnapping. And then there's the endless rapes and sexual assault. And the flagellation without consent, so that's more assault. So yeah, chock full of it. Genitalia. Well, obviously. If you can actually play genital bingo with the book, then I think we comprehensively tick that one. Abortion. No, there is no reference to termination at all. Orgies. Yes, by the end, it's orgy-tastic. Sexual assault. The whole book is just one litany of sexual assault. If I could tick it multiple times, I would. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, at the very end, Emily is pregnant, but she miscarries conveniently so she can go back to England and pretend none of it happened. Masturbation. A little bit, but not very much. Still, I got a ticket. Sex toys. Definitely not. Nothing can compete with the real cock, so let's just leave sex toys out of it. Feminism. Well, no, it is 1828 after all. Divorce. No, no marriage, no divorce. Contraception. No, there isn't a hint of it. Menstruation. Also oddly not mentioned, although perhaps not oddly. No one likes to talk about it. Blasphemy. Not for Christians, no. I'm sure that for Muslims, the portrayal of their religion in this is not flattering or pleasant. But I don't think it's blasphemous. Oral sex. Like I said, there are no blowjobs. But I do think the occasional kissing of the cunt qualifies as oral sex. So I will tick it. Graphic violence. This is a difficult one, because there is violence in it, but it doesn't feel graphic, and I think that's just the prose style. I suspect for contemporaries in the 19th century, this felt a lot more challenging. So I'm going to tick this one. 
Anyway, the flagellation scene is pretty violent. So yes, graphic violence. Queer content. No, not even a hint. In total, that makes 11 out of 25, which is not an impressive score. It's the same as Madonna's sex from last episode. It's still nowhere near as high as some mid-20th century literature like Dunleavy's The Ginger Man or Heller's Catch-22. It's a hilarious read now. It would be good material for a slightly hysterical Zoom book club meeting, but I won't be rereading it myself. So next week was supposed to be about Margaret Mead's anthropology classic Growing Up in Samoa, but... Thanks to fucking Brexit and the fucking pandemic, I can't get a copy of the book. So I may postpone it entirely and do a book from later on in the season. I don't know yet what I'm doing, so I'll keep you in suspense. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds dirty. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.